when somebody says something's impossible, we can't possibly do that, we can't possibly go inside an iceberg, or this is too much for human phys- physiology, I'm like, hmm, well, surely <laughs> there's a way. And the problem-solving aspect is, is what's really interesting to me. So you're a hacker. Uh, you're, you're saying yeah I guess someone yeah, says it's way. impossible and you're like ha, watch me do it right Bulletproof Radio a state of high performance you're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey today's cool fact of the day is that underwater your body is under a lot of pressure and some interesting things happen If you breathe nitrogen under pressure in really deep water, it produces an intoxicating effect known as nitrogen narcosis, aka nitrogen euphoria, or very romantically, the raptures of the deep. Nitrogen, did you hear how I sounded kind of like that guy from the Matrix, you know, that that (laughs) agent? I'm feeling pretty good about that. Uh, Anyhow, (laughs) uh, nitrogen, which is actually what we breathe. We like to say we're oxygen breathers. That's totally BS. We breathe more nitrogen than anything else. So that's what's in the air. We just don't use it very much. It's inert. It just goes into our fluids and tissues in the body without any chemical changes. And it doesn't support most of our bodily functions, except that nitric oxide stuff, which I'm not going to talk about right now. Um, it, when it's present in large amounts, it does weird stuff. So when divers go into the water, the pressure increases, and they have to get air at pressure equal to the water pressure. And nitrogen absorbs into your fatty tissues much faster than other tissues. And since if you've read any of my books, you know the brain and your nervous system are made out of fat way more than the rest of you, uh, you end up getting those effects there and your normal functions are impaired. We're talking lightheadedness, euphoria, numbness, and carefreeness, which might be a bad thing if you're underwater. Your reasoning ability and manual dexterity can slow down. Then, my favorites, emotional stability and irrationality can ensue And then if you keep going, convulsions and unconsciousness. And this is why, personally, I snorkel. Uh, (laughs) So anyhow, if you had never thought about it, you are a nitrogen breather, not an oxygen breather. You just use oxygen as a little electron receptor thing. And uh, so you can rewire your thinking about biology. Today's guest, Jill Heinerth, is an underwater explorer, one of the greatest cave divers on the planet, and she's considered this generation's Jacques Cousteau. She's dived deeper into caves than any woman in history and explored places in the world where no one has ever been. She's a writer, award-winning photographer, filmmaker, an absolute legend in the diving community, spent more than three decades of her life submerging herself in caves for National Geographic, NOAA, and TV shows all over the place, and the first explorer-in-residence for the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. Jill, welcome. Hi, thank you. Nice to be here with you. There's so many questions I want to ask you because you've got all this knowledge about diving and what our bodies do, but there's also something that drives you to go literally into the planet, which, by the way, is the name of your book. Mm-hmm. Why, of all the things you could have done with your life, I and mean, you could have said, I want to be the first person in space, I want to be the first X, why did you pick this crazy, dangerous, mysterious thing? 
<laughs> well, you know, when I was a little kid, I actually wanted to be an astronaut. I was totally inspired by watching the Apollo astronauts on TV. And and that's kind of what set the idea in my mind that I could be an explorer. Uh, but, you know, when I grew up, there was no Canadian space program and no women astronauts. So <laughs> Yeah, there's that problem, right? <laughs> there's that problem. But I also saw Jacques Cousteau on TV exploring these underwater places where nobody had ever been before. And, and I thought, oh, wow, well, that's how I can explore these new exciting places. Um, the cave diving part of it just, I guess, sort of happened unintentionally. It wasn't something I set out to do as a child. But um, um, step by step, I, I got involved in more and more into diving and more and more into technical diving and going to these crazy places. And, uh, and that led to cave diving. And as soon as I had tried that, I was hooked. So it sounds like you had a desire to explore that that goes way beyond the normal human. And I I am dear friends with Peter Diamandis, you know, the guy behind the X Prize who wanted to go to space. My uh, yeah. my head neuroscientist at Forty Years of Zen was a, a nuclear submarine engineer uh, for a long time and spent months under the the poles and things like that. Uh, so I, I'm attracted to to people who have this. You know, what's at the very edge? What I want to know is. Were you born with that? I have to explore. <laughs> Did your parents you know, leave you in the forest with wolves? Like, like what happened to you? Yeah, I was I was definitely an exploring kid. You know, so I loved being outside. I loved um, and had quite a bit of freedom on my own to explore the woods or go paddling in a canoe or or whatever. And um, and I've always liked learning. So learning and curiosity was very much at the center of it too. Um, and problem solving. So when somebody says something's impossible, we can't possibly do that, we can't possibly go inside an iceberg, or this is too much for human phys physiology, I'm like, hmm, well, surely <laughs> there's a way. And the problem solving aspect is is what's really interesting to so, me. So you're a hacker. Uh, you're, you're saying, yeah, I guess someone yeah, says it's way. impossible and you're like, ha, watch me do it. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's another thing. If someone says, oh, you can't, you know, you're for one reason or another, you're too young, you're a woman, whatever, or, or you're too old or, you know, I'm like, ah, watch me, watch me. Got it. So a <laughs> little bit of oppositional defiant disorder in your exploratory yeah, nation. Probably, probably. It, yeah. they, they label it a disorder. I think it's a gift. <laughs> yeah, it has been for me. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The flip side of that, uh, I mean, I, I interviewed uh, a war correspondent, Laura Logan, uh, mm. who's uh, well known from 60 Minutes and mm -hmm. has been also in exceptionally dangerous places around the world. You're just trying to understand what's going on there. But there is for her as well some of that. Uh, I'm going to do it because you said I couldn't. And that's why I want to live to 180, just because people say, you can't do that. I'm like, watch me. Like, Actually, you won't yeah. watch me because you're not doing it. You're going to die. But you can watch me <laughs> until you die. It's okay. Uh, so, <laughs> but, but speaking of death, okay. Uh, in my quest to live a long time, I'm certainly facing death. But mm -hmm. uh, Lara certainly faced death multiple times. And you do too. Mm -hmm. I mean, every time you go down there, um, one of Jacques Cousteau's sons died in a cave diving accident. Well, they think he died. He disappeared. They never saw him again. Um, in a cave in Belize, if I remember right. Um, and, and so how do you grasp this every time you go in the water at some level, whether it's a, a rational level or somewhere else, you know, if I screw up, I might not come out of this cave. What, what's your mindset? What, how do you handle that? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a very real possibility. And so my life is about risk mitigation, but I also look at the realistic um, outlook on life in general. I mean, there's a lot of things that are dangerous in our lives now. um, You know, it's, it's, it's sexier to read about some of these, you know, untimely deaths people have, but, um, and, and, you know, certainly cave diving is risky, but so is driving to the cave diving site. Um, For me, you know, my mom asked me, aren't you afraid of dying? And I'm like, well, um, no, I'm, I'm more afraid of not living a full productive, you know, valuable life, I guess, that contributes to a, a better planet, to humanity or whatever. But when I do choose to take risks, I'm very, very careful about um, assessing risks, trying to prevent as many things that could go wrong, pre-visualizing what could happen underwater, and then ensuring that I have the right training, the right personnel, the right equipment and redundancy with me so that I can handle that worst case possible scenario so you can't kind of put your head in the sand and say, wow, you know, oh, I'm never going to die. You go, no, 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 no. I could die. Here's how it could happen <laughs> in gory details. And then here's how I will respond if the worst happens. It it sounds like you almost have an acceptance of death as a fact, but it doesn't cause an emotional reactivity in you. Because all of us, if you think about it, if you're driving at 70 miles an hour and you twitch the wheel, you have a, what, a 50% chance of dying if you hit a mm-hmm. tree, right? It, it's yeah. not like we're not always at substantial risk. You could choke on your next meal if you don't chew it right. And literally, you yeah. can die all the time, but we don't walk around going, oh my God. Have you shifted your acceptance of death to the point that that it's less of a, a trigger for you than the average person, would you say? Oh, absolutely. I mean, my whole life is about managing fear um, effectively. And and I want to step towards fear. I mean, when you think of it today in society, like there are a lot of people who are really, really fearful. Yeah. Fearful, you know, killer bees, killer storms, killer accelerators on their Toyotas. <laughs> it, it's all consuming. And they're, they're so afraid that they shelter their kids from having experiences and skinning their knees, preferring to prevent it rather than let them have the experience and learn from the consequences of that experience. Um, so, so yeah, I do separate my, myself from, from that fear. Um, and then also in, in the moment, I have to be able to separate emotions from rational, pragmatic um, solutions thinking um, when something does go wrong. So, in that moment of terror, uh, if I'm trapped in a cave that's no bigger than squeezing underneath your bed and the guidelines broken and I can't see in a flurry of silt, sure, your heart wants to race, your breathing wants to ramp up, your head wants to explode into what I call chattering monkeys, Mm -hmm. but you have to be able to say, hey, emotions, you won't serve me well right now. Um, There'll be time to cry and and you know deal about the, deal with this emotional stuff later. But right now, I have to be extremely pragmatic and make very small steps towards success. That's almost a, a Zen master level of emotional control. I, I hear a similar description from emergency room doctors. You know, when, mm-hmm. when they're a master of their craft, someone comes in with blood spraying all over the ceiling and they snap into this mode where complete mm-hmm. calm and, you know, A, B, C, D. And if, if there's some emotional stuff, they'll deal with it later. But mm-hmm. h- how do you learn that? Most people 
don't ever learn it. Or if they do, they're 70 years old, like I've been meditating every day for a long time. And But you got there early. What, I did. What, yeah. was your, what was your trick? Well, I think the first thing to note is exactly what you said. You must learn it and practice it. And I don't think that's even possible through the, you know, Zen master classes in meditation. Um, I think it happens by being scared and then <laughs> reviewing what happened and then thinking about how to deal with it better the next time. And for me, that was um, facing a burglar when I was a young woman. Wow. Okay, yeah. What happened? So uh, I was in university. I had just moved off campus into a house and uh, I was the first of five girls to move into the house. The very first night that I was, you know, curled up in my bed, I heard someone break in downstairs. Oh, no. And I knew I was the only person with the key. And yeah, oh, no. Is right. I mean, the first reaction, like, oh, my God, there's someone in the house, that realization, the monsters in the house. My first thought was, pull the covers over my head, curl up into the fetal position <laughs> and hide, right? And that's that's normal. That's that's exactly what someone would do first, you know, just, you know, curl up into that ball in terror. And then I thought, well, he's not leaving. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I have to do something. So I was forced to act. So I thought, okay, I don't know how this is all going to end, but what what's what can I do next, you know? So I thought, I need to let him know somebody's home to scare him away. So I, I got out of the bed and I walked around the floor and even just standing up, you know, powerfully exposed made me feel like I had more control over the situation. So I stamped around on the floor because I didn't want to use my voice and let him know that I was a woman. So I stamped around on the floor and he still didn't leave. And I thought, there's no way that this person who is downstairs does not hear me walking around on this creaky wooden floor upstairs. Wow. But he persisted to dig through closets and I could hear him in the cutlery drawer in the kitchen. And, you know, one step at a time, he was getting ever closer to where I was. I had no phone. I had no way to jump out of the window out of the second story. I would have landed in a busy street. And so there I am, forced to make a decision. How am I going to deal with this terror? And I have to say, my heart wanted to leap right out of my chest, but I took those deep breaths and tried to press that down, you know, and just just remove that by breathing deeply. And one thing led to another. He came up the stairs. He rifled through the closet outside my bedroom. He even rifled through the bathroom when I heard like like the shower curtain. I heard him lift the back of the porcelain toilet lid. I heard that scraping of porcelain on porcelain. Wow. I heard him in my closet. I heard the steel hangers on the steel curtain rod dragging in across your bedroom? one at a time outside my bedroom oh, wow. door. Okay. So then he's outside my bedroom door. It's an accordion pleated like sliding door. And I see his feet in the shadows and I see his head sort of in that little inch of a crack at the top of the door. And I thought, what am I going to do? And I grabbed two X-Acto knives, two sharp cutting knives off my drafting table. And he busted through that door and came after me. And I turned on a light, shone it in his face to blind him, and then yelled something stupid like, who are you? Identify yourself. 
Because I thought, you know, like, is this a Snoopy landlord? Like, who is this person? Like, before I, before I choose to fight, I need to make sure, like, right. this is this is a real threat. And he came after me, and so I reached over and I slashed down the front of his chest with one of these knives, and cut him, and so surprised him that he jumped backwards. And I think he was high or yeah. something. Um, because he just kind of looked down at his chest and he's bleeding and he looks up at me and he laughed. Oh, it God. was a complete horror show. He laughed at me. And then he turned around and slowly walked out of the room. And I was just like, at this point, the emotions exploded again. I was like, <laughs> you know, oh my God, oh my God. You know, and I thought I have to get out of the house. I have to get out of the house. And, and then I still wasn't sure if he was in the house. So it was this battle, emotions and fast breathing and fast heart rate or tamp it down with a deep breath and 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 push that aside. And eventually I ran screaming out of the house all the way down to the subway station a block away <laughs> and pounded on the door like a crazed mad woman in her pajamas with knives in her hand. Right? <laughs> And um, and they let me in. They called the police, and uh, and then only then, when the police arrived, could I finally calm down and and like drop the knives. But that experience later, after I processed it all, was so valuable to me. Like it it was easy to play victim and drag that around for a long time. But when I finally chose to analyze what happened and analyze how I dealt with the fear that enabled me and gave me power to deal with fear again, better. So, so facing a really intense situation did that. I, yeah. I often wonder, I, I was, uh, I was in more than a few fights uh, when I was in school mm-hmm. and it sounds weird, but the first time you get in a real fist fight, you experience that, Oh my God, this person's going to kill me. And I've never started yeah. a fight, but you know, someone walks up and punches you in the face. You got to do something about it. And at schools mm-hmm. today, you know, they I've, seen eight-year-olds be arrested in the news you're like what the heck you know this is you know childhood stuff but i i remember very much that that idea i'm facing someone who's really out to cause me physical harm and it's up to me and and to eventually realize well if i don't do something about it it's probably not gonna like what happens Mm -hmm. Um, not as intense as you know slashing a burglar to make him leave but there's some some value to having experienced that intensity at least once Mm -hmm. do you think Mm -hmm. that's do you think that's missing from the world today Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, unfortunately, there's been more of a shift to overprotection of of kids. I mean, I certainly had an opportunity to to run free a lot more. And, and, um, and now, you know, if you let your 12 year old kid get on the subway and go to downtown Toronto, big city or whatever on their own, (laughs) you know, the parent might be arrested, who knows, but I don't think the world is any more dangerous to a young person. I really don't think that. It's um, less dangerous. I, yeah, I <laughs> Statistically agree. Statistically speaking. <laughs> I agree. And there's more ways for them to get help than than there was when I was a little kid. Um, so I, like, I, I think that independence is it's really important for a young person to experience. And, and facing consequences is important for them, too. So for you, the combination of early independence, having faced a, a potentially life-threatening situation early on mm-hmm. in life, helped you to become a master of your own fear. Yeah, I think so. But I, I think I got better at it each 
each time I had an experience like that. Like I remember um, I saw a head-on collision and um, the woman had come across the median and been hit head-on by a truck and she was badly injured and her car's smoking and there's little licks of flame under the hood of the car and she's pinned in the front seat of the car. And I remember, again, my heartbeat is going, oh my God, oh my God, and my breathing's going fast. And I'm thinking, I had to say to myself, why are you scared? <laughs> she's the one that, <laughs> she's the one that hurt that's hurt. You know, push that aside for now and just go act and help this poor woman. You know, she needs your strength. Um, so each time I had those experiences, I got better at it. And I could I could then more definitively turn to that steely cold pragmatism. Um, but it's also important when you do that to remember to save time later to process that fear. Otherwise, it just sort of rears its head in unexpected and and other ways, you know. So you can't just say I'm beyond it. You have to process it thoroughly. So fear can enter the tissues of the body and become a trauma that causes you to be reactive later. What's your process for, for letting go of that fear so it doesn't get stuck in you somewhere? How do you do that? Uh, you know, I have to really give it intentional time and, and hopefully I have someone that I can, I can talk to very honestly and, and, and frankly, someone that'll really listen because people don't always want to really truly listen and engage. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you need someone who with empathy, I guess. Do you use a they, therapist or you have a dear friend or how do you do that? Uh, yeah, it's been different people. Sometimes it's my husband. Sometimes it's a dear friend. Yeah. I don't, don't have a therapist, although that probably would have been useful a few times in life. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, you know, I think that's probably a really good way to, to do these things. I'm also an artist. Um, so mm-hmm. some of that spills out in, in creative channels. Like, it's almost like there's a left brain, right brain thing that happens to like um, that creative right brain person shifts into that left brain pragmatist for for the intensity of the emergency or dealing with that fear in an effective way. But then I find that right brain way to process it later. So I might even draw or paint or or write. I, I write a lot. In fact, I found the process of writing my book into the planet to be um, very therapeutic. It, my editor became my de facto <laughs> therapist telling me, give me more, you know, what did that feel like? How did you process that? You know? <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's really cool. I, uh, writing can be really therapeutic. I, uh, I found that by telling my own story in books uh, like this agent book. I'm like, wow, things really sucked for me back then. And I, you do enough work, you kind of let it go. And then you go back and you look at it and go, whoa. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so that, that's how you do it then is you find an artistic expression, you share with someone who's empathetic and, and that's your process mm-hmm. for letting go. Mm-hmm. Now there's something I'm really curious about. I've interviewed uh, Le- Lieutenant uh, Colonel Grossman, who wrote On Combat and On Killing and you know, the psychology mm-hmm. people. And he says that somewhere around one in 10 people, they're intrinsically wired to run towards an explosion instead of away from it because like, they're the helpers. Mm-hmm. It's, it's their job. It's mm-hmm. who they are. Uh, mm-hmm. They tend to end up as first responders or possibly even cave divers. Are you one of those mm-hmm. people or are you yeah. not one of those people? Yeah. No, I'm definitely a run towards the, okay. the situation. I kind of have to be 
for what I do, um, for, for dealing with those, those emergencies, you can't ignore anything. You got to act, uh, act and prevent. And yeah. Okay. So yeah. you're, you're one of the, the people who was wired that way. And according mm-hmm. to, to Grossman's work, you know, there's a, a lot of sheep and very few shepherds <laughs> and that, that we're wired as a species to do that because if everyone was a shepherd, we'd probably just be hitting each yeah. other with axes all the time. <laughs> well, yeah. In, in my book too, I write about the seven R gene. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Talk about it. The, yeah. Yeah. So the adventure seekers, um, gene, and I'm sure I've never had genetic analysis, but I guarantee you <laughs> one of these seven R, uh, uh, genes. So, so there's about, I think it's, I believe it's like 15% or so, uh, it might be more of the population that, um, is, is wired to be the adventure seeker, um, sensation seeker, novelty seeker. And these are the ones that were probably the hunter gatherers the, the, you know, the nomads, as opposed to the farmers, um, you know, staying at home, tending the fire, uh, you know, gathering the food kind of thing. I'd be out, I'd be out hunting. <laughs> Got it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the hunter now, farmer breakdown too. So similar perspective. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the adventure seeker, the novelty seeker, the sensation seeker isn't necessarily risky in that foolish sort of way. Like we're not adrenaline seekers necessarily. It doesn't mean we're dangerous. It doesn't mean we're, you know, death wish kind of thing. It just means we're out and interested in stimulation, learning, curiosity, new things. Yeah. That is so fascinating. So you, you think it's genetic uh, at some mm-hmm. at some level. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the most intense experience you had underwater. Mm, well, uh, that, you know, that one, uh, you know, being trapped inside an underwater cave with a scientist um, who was pretty much acting as the cork in the bottle containing my life <laughs> would be uh, one of the more intense things that's ever happened. So, you know, in the, this cave that's, that's, you know, shoulders on the ceiling, uh, belly on the floor, squeezing through a small passage, leading a scientist to a location where she could get a critical sample for her work. And when we turned around, she panicked and became entangled in the guideline and stuck and, disturbed the visibility so that neither of us could see. Wow. And in the process of panic also broke that safety guideline that we have connecting us all the way back to the entrance. And for me, um, like I say, she's the cork in the bottle containing my life because she is now between me and a safe exit. And if I can't solve this for both of us, we're both going to die. So I had to calm her down. I had to get her unwedged. I had to patch the guideline, but then in the intensity of this silt out, I lost track of her and I had to make a, a choice to um, go further into, you know, the belly of the beast, further back mm-hmm. into the cave to make sure that I wasn't leaving her behind in case she swam that way. So um, as she was actually sprinting for the exit, because she'd finally figured out her orientation, I was going back and further into the cave to make sure I didn't leave my partner behind. And then she hit the surface, called out an emergency basically. And, uh, a a rescue and recovery team was en route to what they figured was to come retrieve my body. Oh no. And so meanwhile, I'm searching and slowly methodically working my way out of the cave. 
And so when I got to the entrance of the cave, it was 73 minutes after she had exited. So so the way I look at that is I was dead to my friends for for 73 minutes. And um, and that was a quite a sobering experience um, to kind of more sobering afterwards to kind of work through as people wrote me letters and emails of the kinds of things they would have, you know, read at my funeral. Yeah. That is so intense. Mm-hmm. Now, were you really pissed at the other diver when you came out? No, not okay. at all. Uh, because I think when you choose to take on risk and you choose to take that on with a partner, um, there's two things you have to ask yourself before you go on a dive like that. Am I capable of self-rescue? Am I capable and willing to execute a buddy rescue? And and that's also with the understanding that if if that other person uh, has more than they can possibly manage, they got to worry about themselves first. And so, so she hit her limit. She could not deal with anything else. And when she finally figured out which way she was oriented and which way was out, she went for it. And in a way, that made my survival easier too because I no longer had to worry about her directly. I could focus on my steps towards getting out. And, and that even included the fact that in digging her out, I had totally filled one of my two breathing regulators full of mud to the point oh, no. where it started malfunctioning. And in order to breathe from it, I had to turn on a tank valve, take a breath and turn it off, turn on a tank valve, take a breath and turn it off in order to conserve the gas that was just like spilling out of the system. So if I also was trying to deal with her in that point, that would have maybe, you know, been impossible. So she did what she had to do. And I, I have absolutely no ill feelings towards her on that. She got to the surface and called for help. And you know, that could have potentially made the difference too. Um, right. Yeah. So that was the right thing to do. Wow. That just sounds really frightening. And I'm, I'm not someone who scares particularly easily. What about claustrophobia? You just don't have it, right? <laughs> I, just, I just don't have it. No, okay. no, but, I, I, I don't either. But, but uh, I'm but, not fearless. Like okay. people always think that I'm fearless and I'm not, I'm scared all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it, because I think being scared means that, that I care about the outcome. And when I'm diving with a buddy that's also scared, I understand that, that they get the whole risk scenario. And if we're both scared and we both care about the outcome, then we're more likely to prepare properly and do the things we need to do to plan a scenario for as safe a possi as possible of a dive. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body. Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. 
Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. From a technology perspective, there's still no way other than hand signals and flashlights to communicate. Is that kind of where we are? Well, uh, sometimes we wear what we call a full face mask. It covers your entire face and you can have a microphone in there. Uh, but it, it it knocks back some of your peripheral vision. It knocks back some of your like side to side head movement ability. Um, it's it's one more failure point in the system. So we tend not to use voice communications unless we're trying to record something for a movie, in which case we'll, we'll do that. Yeah. In fact, they invented those for a movie, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. It, it seems like like communication would be so important, uh, but because you're limited to uh, you know very basic tapping, waving, and blinking, um, mm-hmm. are you? Do you feel like there's some sort of a, a mental, emotional, spiritual kind of connection with someone you're partnering with on a dive? Like, do you sort of get this intuitive sense of what's going on? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, my closest, dearest partners in exploration and diving are people that I've dived with for, you know, 20 or 30 years. And those people I have an absolute, you know, intuitive connection with in the, in the complete blackness, I know what's going on in their head. And, and when we're trying to film something together, um, we, we all know what we're supposed to do and what's going on. And I can just look at their, their kicks or their body motion and know whether everything's okay or not. Um, so yeah, there's definitely, a real intuitive sense and sometimes minimal communications are a gift. So things get a lot more complicated when I put on a full face mask and I start to direct a scene underwater that I'm trying to shoot for a movie. Uh, when, when we don't have the option to communicate, everybody prepares a little better. They know exactly what they're supposed to do. And, and it's almost just like a nod or a wink that, that sets the wheels in motion. But we also have like, very definitive communication rules. Like if I, if I give a single, a symbol of the thumbs up, that means I'm calling the dive it's over and we should turn around and leave. And the understanding with that, that signal is that anybody can call the dive at any time for any reason. And it's a command as opposed to a question. So I can't say, you know, thumbs up, call the dive, and then someone go, oh, no, 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 we need more time. It's like, no, when I give you the thumbs up, it's over, and we're leaving. It doesn't matter if we just blew $100,000 by aborting the dive. Um, so those very strict rules of communication are are really valuable. So you've got some set rules. Mm-hmm. I know that there's been studies of humans and horses. You know, the, if you walk into a, a stall with a horse that's used to humans, its heart rate variability will actually change to match yours. And that's why people who are mm-hmm. super stressed to get with a the horse, they can't ride the horse. And people who are calm mm-hmm. walk in, the horse just holds still. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that there's some sort of magnetic uh, sort, of, uh, sort of connection there? Like, Are you guys synchronized at that level biologically? Has anyone ever studied it? I haven't, I haven't seen anything in divers, but... Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I'm not aware of any studies, but but I certainly feel that way with my closest colleagues underwater. Um, you know, if I'm if I'm teaching a student or something, it I still sense what's going on in their body, but I sense the chaos. Right. You know? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, and I and I have a really good idea of of 
of being able to, you know, guess what's going to happen next, I suppose. But but with those really close colleagues, there's there's certainly a synchronicity between us. Do you have to spend a lot of time out of the water with those colleagues to form that connection? I mean, are you guys going drinking, eating, going on vacation together? Are these more like work colleagues? How long does it take? Like, like tell me at what point yeah. does someone turn into uh, someone who's intuitively connected to you? What's the process? What's it like? So that's kind of interesting because some of these people have been in my life for, like I say, 20 or 30 yeah. years, and I count them as my closest friends. You know, they might live in the Bahamas or, or halfway around the world, but if I um, had some, you know, family emergency and I needed them, they'd be on the next plane to be here. Um, but I've also met people. So, so uh, like a few years back, I had a student, a cave diving student. I didn't know before uh, before that first day as a student. And within the course of that cave diving class, I knew this person was going to be a very um, deeply trusted friend in the future and 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 someone that I would want to dive with over and over again. So there is that, I guess, that gut instinct or or just almost indiscernible connection with some people that you meet right away. And you just know there's a good fit. Okay, so sometimes you know, but it takes a while and do you have to go on a dive with someone to have that? Or do you just build that? And then the first time you go on a dive, if they're an experienced dive, you're like, oh, yeah, like, like we just we sink. Oh, I'm, I'm kind of curious about how long it takes mm. you to do that, because the rest of us listening, you know, we're, we're probably not going to be cave divers. But effective teamwork like that, uh, you are you you're a crucible for that. So I, yeah, yeah, I, 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 th- I guess I, there's certain you know, prejudgments I make about people when I, when I meet them just from their vibe or whatever. Um, and like if I'm hiring for an expedition or finding someone for an expedition, I'm not necessarily looking for the very best cave diver in the world or the very best camera person underwater or the very best lighting person or the very best scientific um, mind to, you know, collect animals in the cave or something like that. I'm actually looking for different things. I'm looking for, um, yeah, team teamwork capability, someone who has an extremely open mind, someone who's curious, wants to learn. Um, because I think that um, you can't teach those skills. You can teach someone other skills, like how to be a better camera operator or or even, you know, teach them more of the wisdom of, of cave diving over time. But but you can't necessarily teach those very core, I think some people call them soft skills, but I like to think of them more as hard skills because they're more important right. to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that is so fascinating. Yeah. I mean, 60 days on a ship and you got to know that that the other people on the ship are going to be good to hang out with, but are also going to be willing to jump to deal with an emergency in a heartbeat that they're going to run to the fire. Has there been a time when one of your, your colleagues or maybe someone who wasn't quite a a friend like that yet, just completely violated your trust on, on a trip, either underwater or above water? Well, I mean, I've certainly been on trips where I realized that we made bad choices about people to take with us (laughs) Uh, and then had to completely kind of reset and, and choose a way to utilize someone 
uh, on a project, maybe not the way they they were intended when we first staffed it. Um, and and that's really how I've learned to do a better job, like at at picking the right people. Um, like I'm totally happier picking someone who's who's a brand new cave diver, like uh, that has the right people skills, the right general skills to take with me, um, than someone who's you know, hard and fast in their ideas and, and, uh, not flexible. Yeah. Yeah. Did you get a lot of crap for being a woman, especially at the beginning of cave diving or was it a non-issue? Oh yeah. I got a lot of crap (laughs) (laughs) throughout this entire, uh, this entire career. I've always been, you know, it's a niche sport within a niche, within a niche, within a niche. And uh, those, none of those niches had very many women in them. So, uh, it's been an uphill battle at times, uh, where I had to maybe, you know, work harder or jump up and down or, or have a pretty hard, uh, hard exterior to, uh, to deal with some of the, you know, the misogyny. But, um, uh, but at the same time, there are times when being a woman has been an advantage to me. Like I've been on a project where I'm the only woman on a small exploration team doing dives that are way outside our our understanding of physiologically possible and um the guys are having to be kind of competitive for their spot on the team not so much for me uh once i proved myself you know worthy uh i was just always out to do better for myself um improve um go farther do more um where these guys were like oh man if i don't do what he did i'm not going to get the next opportunity um so in that sense sometimes it's been advantageous to be the the lone woman i'm a a tall white dude Uh, (laughs) and i i was formerly obese i know you can be treated differently like that but i have no concept of what misogyny would look like or feel like as a recipient of it mm-hmm. what's tell me a story like what's an example of time you're like i can't believe mm-hmm. that just happened because I, yeah. I would never see that in my life and so by, yeah. by sharing stuff like that I, I don't want you to name names or anything like that but no that's okay uh, well i mean as a young woman i thought well gee maybe maybe i'll do commercial diving i knew that i wanted to be underwater and i thought well, commercial diving i'll be a commercial diver they make great money you know oh, look, there's a workshop I can go to for a weekend at a commercial diving school where I can see everything that's going to be involved. It's like an orientation. And then um, presumably, you know, everyone that goes to the orientation then signs up, pays their tuition and ends up going to the school for a couple of years. So I thought, all right, this is it. I'm so excited. This is fantastic. And literally on the first day after I'd asked a ton of questions, and I always think asking questions is a good thing, the instructor walked right up to me and he said, listen, and I was the only woman in the room. He said, listen, there's no room in commercial diving for women. He said, if you just want to go off and train dolphins, like there are other ways to do that. So, you know, you best find yourself something else to do. Wow. He said that with absolute confidence. And I was young enough and not confident enough in the diving end of things that that slammed a door. For me, it's the same way when someone says, oh, well, we don't have a Canadian space program or women astronauts. So, nah, sorry. When a young person has an experience like that, it slams the door in their face, never to be opened again in many ways. Um, now that I'm older and I have 
experiences like that, I'm like, yeah, watch me. <laughs> so the wisdom of, of age has changed things for me. Yeah. I realized that anything I want to do is possible. Wow. It, it just blows me away that, that people do that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. But it, obviously they do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. like, hearing stories about that is uh, it's enlightening, I think, for everyone. Uh, mm-hmm. And of course, probably the the fifty one percent of the population um, who are uh, who are women are like, duh, Dave, that happens all the time. But like, yeah, if you're not one of the people doing it, you might just not really have access to seeing it. So thank you for yeah uh, for yeah. telling me about that. I, I'm I'm sort of dumbfounded by that, but like, it yeah. clearly happens. Yeah. Now you've you've developed an incredible resilience and mindset and ability to to calm yourself. Have the decades of diving changed your biology? I mean, have you experienced things mm. like the space program? We know that changes yeah. people's biology. What's different in you physically mm-hmm. as a result of this? Yeah, uh, some of the things we don't know because I'm really that first generation, especially that first generation of women that have done some of these really extreme dives. I mean, for the divers and the in the uh, the listeners out there, uh, you know, I've done missions that are like 22 hours long. Um, so we don't know in the long term what that could do in terms of uh, one thing is osteonecrosis. So uh, there could be an, is- an issue with my bones, uh, but there could be all kinds of issues we just don't know about yet. But in terms of different enhancements, um, I, I, I have some interesting experiences where I think that I have heightened um, some of my sensory capability. Um, as a cave diver, we often train in the complete blackness, holding a thin guideline and following that through a maze-like network of tunnels of rock. And there's there's things jutting out of the wall that you can bump your head on. Um, there's all kinds of hazards. There's fat parts of the cave, there's skinny parts of the cave, uh, and you're you're just holding on to a thin piece of string and slowly following that in this three-dimensional environment. And over the years of doing that so much, over and over and over again, for thousands and thousands of dives, I feel that I have a proximity sensation in the darkness um, that I don't know whether that is... Um, a, uh, an understanding of the flow of the water and how that moves around objects and then strikes my face or the hairs on my face. I, you know, I don't know whether it's that or whether it's something else, but I do um, work with some biologists who study the animals that live in the darkness of underwater caves and they have unique sensory organs. So why, why wouldn't we have capabilities that we don't necessarily understand? I, I could think of two examples that would support your, uh, your observation there. Uh, one is that when, uh, in fact, it's a Russian special forces martial art called Systema or System A, and they train blindfolded walking through forests at night. And mm-hmm. so even mm-hmm. in one night of training like that, you realize there are sensory apparatus uh, that mm-hmm. uh, that we have. And, and by the end of the night, even people who haven't done it before are quite often not walking into trees. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. it doesn't make any sense. Yep. Uh, the other one would be, actually, it's, it's related to that. It would be uh, the Tom Brown Tracker School people. They say, you know, within a couple of days of that kind of you know, walking around barefoot in the forest doing all sorts of, of mm. primal animal things, that eventually you just sort of wake up and say, oh, I, I have a 
GPS map of where all the animals are around me that I didn't mm-hmm. have before, that that this is somehow built in. Uh, yep. There's a, legends from the Vietnam era of uh, Native Americans uh, who became uh, trackers for the military. Once they cut their hair, it didn't work right. So there's a whole idea that perhaps our hair really, as you're saying, is a part of that. Yeah. Uh, and the old uh, uh, the old navigators in Polynesia, uh, they'd stare at the waves. And mm-hmm. they'd, they'd do it for 30, 40 years, and they could see by the wave pattern, there's an island 500 miles away. But God knows mm-hmm. how they did it, but they, they knew. Yeah. And they, yeah. in their bones, they knew. So you, you've you probably developed some of that. Yeah, okay. I think so. I, I've, I've been in the uh, in the middle of the Sahara Desert with an Amazigh Bedouin guide, and and I'm using a GPS and some military maps, and and he's just yeah looking looking off into the horizon, looking at the sand, and uh, you know who's the better navigator? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because he did not even understand the concept of of GPS or two dimensional maps that I had, and because I kept saying, Fadi, don't we need to go? Don't we need to go that way towards the sun?" And he's like. Uh, yes, but no, we have to first go this way because because there it's not passable. And and so he just had this incredible understanding and ability to navigate in a featureless desert. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. So you're you're one of the outliers, probably by many orders of magnitude there. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> What uh, what about the bends? Uh, you always see this in movies, like oh the bends and you know people exploding inside of pressure chambers and things like that, which isn't how it really works. Tell me about when you've had the bends. Yeah, so I got bent almost twenty years ago on a, an exploration project in Mexico, um, and for those that don't know what it is, basically, um, like you were saying in the opening, as we descend underwater. Uh, our body will use the oxygen molecules to metabolize and uh, fuel the human body. But that nitrogen or helium that we might use for deeper dives that's in our breathing mix is is not useful to the human body. It's inert. So the way that we deal with it under pressure is that it gets basically packed into our tissues, dissolved into our tissues. And you could think of that much like a bottle of soda pop with the cap on it. There's lots of dissolved gases in there. And if you take the cap off quickly or you shake up the soda pop bottle and take the cap off, it'll fizz, right? Because that's gas coming out of solution when the pressure is being reduced. So the diver that goes down and stays down will never get bent. But if you have to come up from a very deep or long dive, you have to come up slowly over a series of steps that allows your body to just naturally off gas through respiration, like removing that cap so infinitesimally small steps that the gas is released without creating a mess. Um, If we fail or if the mathematical algorithm fails to predict what's happening in the real human body, then then some of those, um, then some of those bubbles can cause issues. And it could be everything from a rash to paralysis, and that's the bends. Now, are there long-term effects from having the bends? I mean, does it cause permanent yeah. damage in the body? Yeah. So we don't. We again, we we don't know. We do know that once you've been bent, you're more statistically likely to get bent. And for some people, getting bent once is enough to make sure that they never dive again. Um, uh, so I could have done long-term damage. I'm more likely to get bent. And, and as I age some more, I'm sure there'll be lots of people interested in poking and prodding and, and seeing what, you know, more than 7,500 dives have done to my body. Yeah. 
what about temperature? I mean, mm-hmm. you've dived in the Antarctic mm-hmm. inside an, an iceberg. What, what was that like? What, what did the temperature do to all these other crazy things that you deal with? Yeah, I do a lot of diving in the polar regions, but the one project you're talking about was when I was the first person to cave dive inside an iceberg. And the water is minus 1.8 Celsius or 28 degrees Fahrenheit. So one tenth of a degree colder and it would be frozen solid. Uh, So it's as cold as water can really get. Wow. Um, it's tough. It's very hard on the body. You're never comfortable. You do everything you can to wear the right layers of stuff to make it as comfortable as possible. Um, but, um, but you're never totally happy. (laughs) So it's uncomfortable. I've talked, I've talked to a few divers, actually more than a few who've started using, uh, bulletproof coffee, uh, because they mm-hmm. want to boost their ketones just to have more mm-hmm. energy, especially in cold water. And a lot of big wave surfers mm-hmm. uh, do it as well. Uh, they're saying, I, I feel like I can hold my breath longer. I, I feel like I have a different mm-hmm. kind of energy. Do you, uh, I mean, do you power up with gels? Do you change what you eat when you're going in cold water? Or is it pretty much the same, same as you would normally do? Uh, well, yeah, it's pretty much the same as what I normally do, but I am a real believer in, in keto diet. Oh, you so, are, you're already in yeah, the keto. Circle. How long yeah. have you been in that, in that world? Uh, a couple of, well, about three years. Okay. So uh, recent. Recent. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it does make a big difference. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you see a difference mm-hmm. underwater when you're in ketosis versus burning glucose? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm definitely more tolerant to uh, to cold. Um, so I don't know whether it does help. Okay. Yeah, I I don't know whether it's necessarily just the keto diet or whether it or whether it's other things as well. Like certainly, um, uh, learning how to breathe properly and effectively is part of that too. Um, I, I you're probably familiar with um. Wim Hof method. He's been on the show. He's a, he's a friend. He's been on the Hof. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, oh, so, cool. So, okay, so you do the Wim Hof yeah. breathing before you go down? Yeah, I wow. think that that's really helpful in the whole pre-visualization phase of, of my dive. Um, also, in it, like if I need to warm up afterwards, I'm really focusing in on, on my inner fire and breathing is very helpful too. Yeah. There's something interesting with uh, hypoxia, which ideally you're not getting <laughs> when you're underwater. Right. Um, yeah. But I've done some high altitude mountaineering, and uh, there's multiple pictures of uh, bulletproof coffee at Everest Base Camp and and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because mm-hmm. people figure out when there's less oxygen, it's kind of funny. If you can burn fat in the form of ketones, there's more electrons available, so it's easier. Mm-hmm. But traditional science says, oh, it's easier to burn sugar when there's less oxygen for reasons I don't quite remember or even understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. my experience has been if there's less oxygen, and I do hypoxic training, intermittent hypoxic training at Upgrade Labs. Oh, interesting. Uh, where you you actually are under an exercise load, and you get mm-hmm. your blood oxygen down to 87, but you do it... Uh, because you're breathing air that's been scrubbed of oxygen. So you can breathe mm-hmm. all you want, it just doesn't do anything mm-hmm. for you. Right, right. And, and yeah. then you switch over to 100% oxygen for a little while, which trains your hemoglobin receptors to more easily grab onto oxygen and makes you altitude mm. acclimated. Uh, and I, I do feel like having at least 0.5 ketones on, on a finger stick, which is what I get from you know just using brain octane, um, that I, I feel like I do have more 
ability to hang in there at those low low oxygen levels and my brain still works versus if I was just you know, burning rice, I, it wouldn't work the same. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. I mean, especially when you're saying, and my brain still works. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm a like one of the pioneers in what we call rebreather diving. So oh. most uh, scuba divers wear a tank on their back. They inhale from the tank. They exhale and make bubbles. With a rebreather, it's exactly the same gear that you would use to make a spacewalk from the International Space Station. We exhale into a, a loop, trapping the gas. Mm. We scrub the carbon dioxide out, and then we make micro-injections of oxygen back into the breathing mix to make up for what we've metabolized. So you're not wasting anything at all, and you can use far fewer resources for deep and long dives, and you also won't make bubbles, which can be quite handy. It's also a little bit warmer. Oh, nice, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's all uh, That's all uh, really, really helpful. So we're constantly manipulating our our, um, our, our breathing loop. We're constantly manipulating our life support gases, which could be one of the most dangerous things you'll ever do in life. <laughs> um, but it has, it has a lot of, uh, advantages too. And when we were first starting to use rebreathers, I wanted to know about what's it going to feel like if I'm hyperoxic, what's it going to feel like if I'm hypoxic, what's it going to feel like if I'm breaking through the carbon dioxide scrubber, now, this is not the safest way to um, uh, figure these these <laughs> things out, but but in those early days, we, we knew nothing about the rebreathers. We knew nothing about how to safely train on them. And so we wanted to have these experiences and see uh, how we would respond. And we did this hypoxia training um, in a uh, somewhat controlled um, situation. And the instruction to the diver was, if you start to feel hypoxic, bail out so what does that feel like (laughs) yeah so we we hid the display from them so they don't actually know what their po2 is their partial pressure of oxygen in their body um and they're just supposed to go on gut and what we discovered is that is that the the afflicted diver would recognize symptoms even be capable of writing down a word like tingling on a piece of paper But if you're feeling tingling and you recognize that that's hypoxia, that should have triggered the manual motor um, control of actually switching off the loop and saving your life. So so somebody who actually writes down a symptom or reports a symptom but doesn't necessarily physically act to save their life, it's kind of interesting. And we found that most people kind of drifted down into that hypoxia where – they still had the mental acuity to know, oh, this is hypoxia. It's happening. I'm going to die. And even in their mind, sometimes they actually thought they had made the physical motion of bailing out, but they didn't before they physically passed out and we had to rescue them. It's a very odd feeling to be hypoxic. It, it's like you're swimming in uh, swimming in mud a little bit and, yeah. and you have this awareness, but you're not really in there. And when yeah. I when I do this kind of work, uh, just for training my physiology, something called hypoxic or hypoxia inducible factor one alpha, which makes you live longer. Apparently, I just I just did a show on that. Um, I will hold the oxygen scrubber in my hand, or I, I will hold the mask against my face, depending on which technology I'm using. That way, if I pass out, I'll drop it, and then I'll get oxygen uh-huh. from there around me. 
<laughs> because right. otherwise, if you put a mask on that does that and you accidentally pass out, you are dead. And right. that, would, that would be sad. Yeah, we actually learned uh, from our experience, <laughs> uh, and we're instructed that that even if you drop that mask uh, in the face of hypoxia, the human body does not always trigger to breathe again. <laughs> oh, you probably so get more hypoxic takes... than I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have an SpO2 oh. monitor on. If I go below 87, I stop. And oh, okay, yeah. 87 yeah. would be it's time to go to the ER and the ICU for most yeah. people. Yeah, but it's yeah. not really dangerous. I'm talking about doing it for one mm. minute at a time. Right, right, right. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. I think I'm within really clear safety tolerances, but you would know better than me. I, I mean, am I taking more <laughs> risk than I think? Uh, I, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, for us, uh, we were finding that at like 0.13 partial pressure of oxygen, like you're normally breathing 0.21 mm-hmm. in your breathing air, uh, that would be significantly lower than your, your O2 sat of 87%. But uh, we, we found that people were reporting issues and starting to lose the ability to act. And then at 0.11 to 0.1, they're passing out physically. Yeah. Wow. Well, I've, I've certainly never passed out. I've seen some stars. Uh, Mm -hmm. And there's, there's really interesting science around when you trigger these emergency hypoxic responses, your, Mm. your cells are so receptive to receiving oxygen that when you put oxygen in, you can get a 26 times increase of oxygen in the brain for brief periods of time. I believe that because when we were doing those experiments, um, when somebody finally passed out, we would we rescue them, basically put them on 100% O2. And we discovered that even though 100% O2 is completely tolerable by a human, you know, at, mm-hmm. at normal atmospheric pressures, um, we were causing seizures. <laughs> yeah. So it was such a spike and such a shock to the body. The person went into a, an actual seizure. So yeah, I believe that. Yeah. You're, you, I mean, you are some of the ultimate biohackers. I, I've long thought, mm-hmm. uh, especially free diving, but even diving just at, with the pressure things, you're testing the very limits of what the human body is known to be able to do. And of course you're going to find all mm-hmm. kinds of cool stuff that no one noticed. Mm-hmm. What is mm-hmm. the craziest thing you've noticed that you just wouldn't have thought a human body could do that, that it did? Oh, wow. Uh, I don't know. Um, I mean, certainly the whole like navigating in the dark has yeah. always been really, yeah. really fast. That's a superpower. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But even even sort of the endurance factors for me, when I look back on some of the things that I've done, some of the things that I've I've survived. I realized like we are capable of so much more than we could possibly imagine. Um, so even, you know, the course of doing this, you know, 22 hour mission after being up for a whole day just to prepare for it, um, we can really dig deep and, and do so much. Um, but it, but you gotta be willing. So I've been with people on dives where I've had a really good mental framework around the dive. I've had a very positive dive. It's gone well. I haven't been scared, but I've been with someone who's had a bit of a something scary happen and their whole mindset changes. And then that person has gotten bent after exactly the same exposure that I've had. So, so I kind of feel like there's so much more about our mental state of mind that um, will, you know, deliver physical success or, or more detrimental things too. Yeah. You've seen the changes in our oceans over the last 30 years, you know, the increases mm-hmm. in plastic and, and just the way the environment's changing. 
and you've also seen some of the most unspoiled, most amazing parts of the ocean. Do you think that the oceans are recoverable at the state they are now? Well, um, we're in a really tough, uh, tough point in human history uh, with climate change and everything that's happening, the acidification of the oceans, the plastification of the oceans. Um, And I, I truly believe that we... We are very close to if we have not already passed the tipping point um, where, you know, decisions that we make in the next couple of years will determine the um, survival of our species. The Earth's going to be fine, whether we're on it or not is another question. There will be life on Earth, too. It just might not look like us. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah, I believe that. And I used to feel like I had gone to these places that were so pristine and untouched by humanity, you know, going to Antarctica, you don't see contrails in the sky for six, you know, uh, six weeks, eight weeks. Um, you see, you know, no evidence of humanity and you feel like you're in this, you feel like you're on another planet. But now with the whole um, understanding of, of plastic oceans and, and, and even how we're acidifying the ocean and, and changing the, global circulation of water around the planet i realized that there's there's no place that's untouched and there's there's places that should be pristine and untouched that are suffering you know great ills from the actions of people very very far away yeah we're just we're not aware of that mm-hmm. given that context how long do you think you're going to live oh uh i think i uh i have some good genes okay. <laughs> and some good lifestyle choices i I kind of think I'm going to be about 110, 120 years old. All right. Yeah. I yeah. like that. Yeah. And, and you're, do you mind if I ask how old you are now? 55 in 55. a couple of weeks. Yeah. Okay, got it. So you're, yeah. you've got, you're only 50% of the way there. Halfway there. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. It's funny. I, I read an article the other day about how they were saying, well, the human body genetically is only meant to be 38 years old. And I'm like, oh, my God, I was just starting then. Yeah, that's such <laughs> BS. <laughs> no. <laughs> no I, 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 yeah, I believe that there's so much that we can do to, you know, <laughs> determine our, our, our future. Really. Yeah. And uh, it just you just got to be wide awake. Yeah, I believe the more people who understand they might live for at least 100 and possibly hundreds of years, the more quickly we're going to clean crap up around here. Because if you realize you're going to have to be there to deal with the impact of your actions, you might actually do something more now. That's a good point. (laughs) Good point. Jill, it's been really fascinating interviewing you. Is there something I should have asked you (laughs) that I didn't? Oh my gosh. I don't know. This has been a really interesting conversation. I I could talk to you all day. Well, I I appreciate you being on Bulletproof Radio and I appreciate your work just exploring new realms and your mindset and and you've developed a a very interesting self-awareness through the path you've been through and I appreciate the way you're able to put it into words and to share it with everyone listening. So it's likewise, it's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much and thanks for for what you do. All this great information out in the world is, is helping a lot of people. If you like today's episode, you know what to do. Head on out there and pick up Jill's book, Into the Planet. You could also go to intotheplanet.com. You want to get inside her mind even more and inside the planet. Read the book. It's, it's actually really a fascinating account of what makes someone this many standard deviations uh, from normal uh, actually tick. And that's a compliment, by the way. <laughs> and if you do read 
into the planet, you also know what to do. You've got to leave a review because if someone spends thousands of hours writing a book that was worth five or six hours of your time to read, just say thanks. It's easier than leaving a tip for an Uber driver. A human upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.